going to re-record up here. Okay. I don't know why it said my Mac is not running fast enough, but all right. Here we go. On uh, three, two, one. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. As you can see, we have we are joined by a Megadeth bassist, a David Ellefson. Oh, sorry. Grammy Award-winning Megadeth bassist. We got to get it right. When you it's, win, it's like, it's like being it's the difference between Paul McCartney and Sir Paul McCartney. I yes, guess, right. <laughs> yes. Hey, when you when you earn the title, you earn the title. You got to use right. it. I'll take it. I'll take you got it. you got to take it. We've also got uh, Drew Fortier, and as you can see, uh, co-host Alan Niven. So I feel like I'm doing the red carpet at at the Grammys or something, <laughs> and and coming out next to so wearing a beautiful uh, no. Anyway, uh, bonjour, gentlemen. Uh, I'll I'll start with Dave. How are you, Dave? You know, I'm well. I just got home from the Midwest. We just did a tour this week. We booked these dates uh, to go out and promote the uh, Ellison No Cover record. Uh, of course, not knowing, you know, that the pandemic would be upon us like it was, you know. But the dates were booked, so we went out and we did it. We masked up. We lathered up. In fact, a friend of mine, John Acolino, who you might know from Icon, he actually has a uh, a new product that we actually use or that I use to lather up, lather it up on your face and everything. But we uh, we masked up. We went out and we did it and just said a prayer and like, you know, keep us safe and went in and rocked the house and did our stuff. And so I just got home from that. And I'm a little tired. I'm not going to lie. So uh, I'm rebooting with some some coffee. <laughs> so oh, I think you're muted, Mitch. Uh-oh. We're 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 re-upping with Ellison coffee. Yes, no. actually, yes, it is. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that, not, that was not a shameless plug. That just was a timely plug, actually. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Listen, we have we have to plug stuff. Uh, just like real quick, Alan, when was the last time you actually were in a room or even an arena with Dave Ellison? Well, I was wondering if David would remember this, but actually, it's it's quite entertaining. I do remember it. I want to hear you tell it because I remember <laughs> it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. There was a party in Soho and uh, Dave and um, and his cohort Mustaine were there. And the last time I saw Dave was when Dave and I had to pick Mustaine up off the floor, <laughs> carry him outside, Oops. hail a cab that I ended up paying for and did. send him off to his hotel because he was a little the worse for wear. <laughs> that is exactly how I remember it. Yeah. Thank you, by the way, for that. I'll, I'll hit you back. I owe you an Uber. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll settle for a beer next time you're in Prescott. No, that's on me. That's on me. And it's funny because we're right down the road. I'm in Scottsdale. You're about two hours north in Prescott. I'd, I'd heard you'd been up there for many, many years and uh, kind of retired out of L.A. And and uh, so it's it's good to see you again, Alan. We literally haven't seen each other since that fateful night in the taxi over in uh, London. So <laughs> the, the taxi. Well, hey, yeah. And I'll, and I'll bet you that Dave Mustaine has no memory of it at all. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I remember because you you were dude. You were like an angel. You like appeared out of nowhere and said and and like you know whisked him up and he said, "I got this. Come here, boys, <laughs> in the cab." And like a true manager. So whisked us off and saved us from from a fateful night in a bar somewhere. So. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, yeah um, Alan, you you never you never managed a, a Megadeth, but were, was that ever a consideration in your in your business dealing? Saying, hey, you know what? You've got Metallica, and we've got this other band that's making just as much noise. Did you ever consider picking them up or or working with them on any level? 
Well, it's funny you should ask that. Um, Dave can probably help me out here, but didn't you have a an independent female uh, PR back in the day? We did. Well, Val James, um, who worked for Rod Smallwood, uh, did a lot of the Iron Maiden stuff. When we when Ron Lafitte came in, and so he Ron Lafitte came in about late '89, uh, um, and really kind of put us back together. You know, helped us get cleaned up. He said, he said, he goes, look, the world is yours. Capitol Records is waiting for a new record, but you guys got to get clean or it's over. And um, so they, well, he's the one. It would have been about that time, but uh, yeah. this young lady uh, uh, had it in her mind that there should be a meeting of minds between us, and uh, yeah. there were a couple of social events at her house, a barbecue here, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I have to confess that I went away and thought about it, and I went, I need one more addict, like I need a whole <laughs> Maybe I mean, Susan you know, Crane or somebody. Might have been Susan Crane, somebody like, yeah, there was, there was, I, I, I remember... I remember that. And I remember there was a conversation we were because we had a manager, Keith Rawls, through like Peace Ellis and so far so good so what, who Andy Summers, uh, our agent, brought in. And then we went over to Doc McGee uh, literally for a couple of months. And Doc was very direct. He said, our, we're here to make a lot of money. Uh, we expect our artists to work very hard. We'll make you very famous. We make a lot of money. You can do whatever you want. But if you're too high, we'll help you get help. And if you can't accept help, there's the door. And um, we tried to get clean. Uh, those were my first rounds of rehab, and um, and then I we couldn't put we couldn't turn the corner. It took another year or so. So Doc sent us on our way. And it's funny because now we're good friends with Doc. We see him, of course, when we play with Kiss. And Doc is wonderful. Well, and uh, you know, well, don't take it personally. It was yeah. just it was all about my state of mind. I'm sure you can imagine with who I was dealing with. I oh was yeah. Like, I oh, yeah. just don't have the capacity to do it. In fact, had, had you agreed to do it, I might have had to put the hole in your head for thinking about it. <laughs> because we were we were all pretty much unmanageable back in that day, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And me and, me and you know, a couple of your clients were hanging in sorted spots around the world, too. So, yeah, I, I know all too well. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. Another one of your clients, uh, well, great white, Rob, uh, right? Um uh, the the keyboard player, right? What was the keyboard player? Audi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm funny. I ran into him. I went bowling, uh, of all things, here at like I don't know, Dave and Buster's or something. It was like we did like a kind of a rock and roll bowling bowling night, and and he was there. And I had not seen him for many years, and I understand me maybe he lives here in the Phoenix area or something. So it was great. He and I always got along well. We'd always see each other at parties around around LA and obviously you did a great job managing great whites and blowing those records up. And so he was, he was always a friendly face in the crowd, you know? So uh, oh, he's always a very amenable guy, Michael. Very much so. Very much so. drink by the way, which is yeah. probably why he's amenable. Probably why he's amenable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we remembered each other when we saw each other. Oh yeah. Hey, good to see you again. You know, so rock yes. and roll, bowl. rock and roll. So, so let's, let's talk about somebody who's less amenable. It is uh, the sledge Chronicles rock star hitman. It is this book mm -hmm. of, uh, now from what I'm gathering. So in order to become a rock star, you essentially got to sell your soul to the devil, or in this case, to a sort of a, a hitman organization. Um, talk to me a little bit about, about this and who came up with the idea and drew, don't forget to, to, to hop in whenever you want as well, but, yeah. um, mm -hmm. 
Okay, so the idea started, I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil uh, a year ago, literally a year ago in November, um, doing a solo tour. And, and a friend of mine called from uh, Phoenix and he said, where in the world are you today? And I said, I'm in Sao Paulo. And he laughed and he, um, he said, he goes, you know, we all think you're this rock star, but I'm kind of wondering if maybe you don't work for the CIA or some covert KGB operation on the side, right? <laughs> doing hits. And I thought, dude, that's a great idea for a story. And I'd want to, you know, I've written five books, I guess now, a couple memoirs, uh, self-help book and uh, another uh, kind of lyric and poem book that I, that I set the pictures and stuff years ago. And so, but I've always wanted to write fiction and I've never had the story. And it's just one of those moments where the story just landed there. So, um, you know, I, I called Drew because Drew and I are working uh, with Ellison Films. We we have a film that he created called uh, Dwellers that we're going to put out here in uh, February. So I called Drew because, and I always say, don't let his boyish good looks fool you. Inside of that mind is a demented personality. And uh, I was literally, I was I was on the airplane flying around South America. And I literally kind of wrote most of this book. I kind of framed the characters, got the idea tethered out there and I hit Drew. I said, all right, dude, time for you to bring in some, some of your demented work. And, and of course he wrote a prologue that, you know, guy's head in a bag on a train. And I'm like, all right, <laughs> this is it, you know? And, uh, he came up with some wonderful ways to murder people. And, um, which really kind of got the story. Cause you know, it seems like everything I'm in, I'm kind of the straight man and I'm always with like a funny man, you know, the funny man, straight man thing. Right. So I needed like a kooky guy, which is what Drew does. And um, and that's that's it. I mean, the you know, it, it's funny when you, when I, I liken it to John Grisham, you know, Grisham was a lawyer and then he got into writing and he, you know, he kind of starts close to home with his books are law based because he's a lawyer. Right. So the firm, of course, being one of his first big works. So I did the same thing. I said, let me kind of bloom where I'm planted and rock and roll. Let me start there with the character and kind of and and, I, and you can be somewhat autobiographical. My character starts in the Midwest stars in his eyes, moves to LA, signs, you know, the elusive record contract. But of course, in this contract, you know, he has to work for this agency um, and, and have to do and has to do hits and and uh, and take some people out during the day and then be a rock star at night. And uh, I just got to say, it, it, so sorry to cut you off, but I, as I'm listening to this, you know, signing the record deal, in a sense, Alan Niven's your villain because he's the one who... <laughs> <laughs> and in this story, we might actually have to take Alan out at some point. Who knows? The good guy becomes the bad guy, suddenly becomes the good guy, you know? And so what's fun about it is this, this of course, takes place uh, um, across the United States on the tour. That's, uh, of course, there's a romantic interest and, in, you know, all the things that sort of color and flesh out a story. And I'm actually working on book two now where the band starts to go to Europe. And of course, that brings in a whole other level of international espionage and terror and, you know, all kinds of other. So, you know, to me, it was kind of like, well, there's a nice series here because wherever he goes on tour, there's bad guys. So he can go to South America and go to Asia. Um, so I, I figured we got a nice little kind of Jack Reacher type, uh, you know, storyline that we can sort of, you know, Jason Bourne, we can kind of, you know, write out a few of these. And, um, and, and you can, you, know. you can bring in the Scorpions and their CIA wind of change song. You can, you can just <laughs> roll it all in there. Uh, Alan, did you ever ask anybody to sell their soul to the devil when they signed with you? Um, no, I, I tried to uh, make sure that they kept their souls and, and got a sense of what their souls were. But when, when you were talking about the book, obviously the thought that crossed my mind is, 
here's a great analogy of going to the crossroads and selling your soul. Totally. You the CIA. Now you've got, got your analogy and you've got to sell your soul to the deep state or whoever. <clears throat> and I think in some way, you know, guys like me who grew up in the Midwest, uh, Drew's from, you know, lives in Indianapolis, you know, there's this thing that sort of, you know, our rock stars were our heroes and they, you know, kiss and, these guys, you know, these were a far away, uh, you know, they were like Marvel comic heroes, you know what I mean? It was almost unreachable. And so I think there was this, I know for me, I remember I was 16 years old rehearsing in my, uh, the shed on my dad's farm and Van Halen was starting to really blow up and Ozzy Osbourne was getting his musicians out of LA. So we started to hear about uh, Rat and Motley Crue and uh, Brad Gillis was in Ozzy's band for a minute. So now we knew of Night Ranger. And it seemed like it was all going on on the West Coast, you know. So I had to get to L.A. And, of course, I get there and it's, you know, now it's it's crunch time. It's rubber meets the road, you know. And now, you know, all my heroes, you know, the Kiss guys, they live right up the street, up in the hills. And Eddie Van Halen's right up the street. And, you know, you realize, wow, OK, I'm in the, I'm in the, with, in the pool with the big boys here. And and there is that thing. It's like, who who do you trust? You know, and I guess, you know, I and I'll, I'll again, I'll give a shout out to my my partner, Dave Mustaine there. Uh, you know, he he's he's tough and he's a fighter and he would, you know, he would fight anybody for anything, um, especially to make sure that we got our way and made our way right. And and um, and I'm lucky because, you know, who knows, I probably could end up like the character in this book uh, had I not had someone to have that kind of street smarts and savvy and, and everything. And, and Alan, you know, of course, the guys you've managed, you know, they, they were, they were deep in the, in the trenches in the streets of Hollywood, you know, and, and they, you Not know, trenches, they, gutters. Gutters. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Even lower than the trench, the gutter. Yeah. Um, Andrew, I've got to ask you, yeah. how do you kill people? Do you use old uh, guitar strings and garrote them? Well, over to you, Drew. You do most of the killing in this book. Oh, yeah. They're very, very imaginative kills for sure and very, very brutal. And uh, you ever see Marathon Man? The oh, yeah. Torture scene? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a scene based off of that. I had a really bad uh, toothache earlier in the year and had to get it pulled. But the pain I felt leading up to it was some of the worst pain of my whole entire life. So I wrote, I wrote that into the book where the main character gets tortured for a little bit. And it's just the way it's... Yeah. plays out is very 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 uncomfortable there's pliers but, and hair dryers with eyes oh, open yeah. and you know good good painful stuff you know it's funny reading it and again we kind of i guess maybe with drew and i it's kind of like two guys writing a song together you know you kind of get to go oh yeah i love that uh, great chorus you know we kind of get to um you know have that have that sort of back and forth with it and it's sort of like when it you know when when your buddy comes up with a part you know, it rocks your world you're like dude that is that's freaking sick right there man and i can feel the pain in my tooth or i can feel <laughs> an eyeball getting torched with a hair dryer and, you know it's you know and, and that's just of course the setup to the death but you know no no good death needs to go unpunished you know so it's it's drew did some drew Again, don't let this kid's boyish good looks fool you. He's a demented. Wait, demon are you talking about me? Yeah. <laughs> and you too. I had nothing. To, uh, well, Kevin, let me ask you this: You do have Dwellers coming out in February on Ellison Film. Are you writing these books with an intention of eventually having like a Jason Bourne series where there will be a part one and a part two of the Sledge Chronicles, or is this really just for book? No, I, I think it is that, you know, it's, it's interesting. Music's not enough anymore, is it? You know, nope. music suddenly becomes us. And we had realized this years ago, even in the 90s, our bands would get asked to write these, you know, a song for an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or Bill and Ted or whatever. 
And at that point, you know, you're just a small player. As big as our bands were, you know, you submit a song to a soundtrack, you're just a very small part of a big film. But now, you know, all these years later, you look back on it, and it's really about, you know, as you're creating content, and I don't think we're thinking about it like that, but we are, we're creating, you know, books and music and film, and, you know, you kind of become this, you, you just, you're, you're just, you're using all of your faculties, you know, it isn't just about music anymore, you know, now you are writing a book, and in Drew's case, he's thinking sort of, uh, how does this translate to, you know, to the film world? And, and I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think anything you write now, you think about like, Hey, it doesn't have to just stop on a record. It doesn't just have to stop on a book. Um, and what's kind of fun is, you know, uh, Vin from, uh, from oh, the band. Oh, there we go. Now we actually, he's our, uh, he's our cover model here. He yep. was kind enough to give us the, this photo and, uh, and he is our character for sledge. And, um, Interestingly enough, Drew and I and Vinny and uh, Mike Heller from um, Raven and, and Fear Factory, we were actually in the studio this summer and we wrote a record and it's a record to go along with the book. Um, I don't know that it'll come out simultaneously. Well, it won't come out simultaneously because the book's coming out in uh, December. But we have a record that we did together. And I've always been a big fan of Vinny's vocal work, of Sponge, of course, and you know, this is a year of uh, interesting collaborations. You know, it's this one year where kind of, I think, the everyone's off the leash. All things are open for possibility. And Drew sent me a couple of tracks that he and Mike were working on. And I thought, this is really cool. This kind of deserves some really kind of just simple uh you know cool bass playing to it and then and then when Vinny got involved with writing lyrics and stuff and we all met out in LA in July Vinny actually flew out just for a couple of days from Detroit <laughs> and we were hanging out I was like you know Vinny's a freaking rock star man like this this guy just oozes freaking <laughs> rock and roll man and and he's just one of those guys and you know Alan when you get in the room with real rock stars it it, it you just feel it the room changes when they're in it you know and um and it was it was cool to uh to do a record. So, you know, at some point, probably next year in 2021, we'll, we'll put that record out as well. That was a cool thing too. Cause when we, the four of us got in a room together, we all just clicked and the whole time, and we didn't play a note of music together. So that's how you know you really got something cool going on there when we could really get along without having uh, music be the, the ultimate tether, you know? So we, we just, we just kind of all got along as human beings. So that, that was really cool and really important too. So uh, that was, that was, that was a fun time. As opposed to some bands where you make great music and you hate each other. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's unfortunately a lot of the Sunset Strip bands now. When you, when you look down the road, they're, they're all fighting and there's four versions of the same band. And oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's an interesting documentary. <laughs> there's a lot of great content. Alan, go, go, go ahead. I was, was going to say, I've got to slightly disagree with you there, Dave. Um, when you say you're in a room and uh, you sense that presence, everybody I knew, um, first of all, I wanted to keep it grounded, yeah. keep a center of gravity. And the other thing was, is they all grew into their personas. The problem was, is when they didn't know when to leave the persona. And I tried to explain, bottom of the steps of the stage, you're you. Top of the steps of the stage, in your persona. Mm -hmm. Come off, go into the dressing room call it out, be you again. You know, and that's what makes you an awesome manager. Um, probably a manager who got fired more than once or twice because you had actually some sort of semblance of, because let's face it, how many of us, when we walked off that bottom step, when we're coming off the stage, 
We don't want to hear that, you know. And sometimes, it, sometimes it's the walk to the dressing room. Sometimes it's even an hour or two after you're in the dressing room. And, of course, that's when other illicit behavior happens, uh, you know, to try to come down off of that. And, and you know, it's, it, 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 and speaking to that, it's funny. I, you know, being on tour with Alice Cooper years ago, um, I always said, you know, Alice is he's probably really, of course, he's been in the business many years and he learns um, too that, you know, it's like, you know, on stage, Alice is the villain. You know, he's he's the most wicked, evil guy there is in the makeup and come off the stage. The makeup comes off. He goes back to being, you know, oh, Alice, uh, the yeah, the golfer, the father. And he's very clear on that role. And I always really um, we flew around South America together on the tour and and I, I really admired that about him, you know, and he he brought that that whole thing uh, back home. But you're right. When we're young, we just think it just keeps going, you know, and, and I can forever be that guy. And I say young, meaning certainly in our 20s, you know, by the time you hit 30, if you haven't had a rehab or a divorce or a couple of other bankruptcy or a couple of other things happen, <laughs> um, you know, that, that'll 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 learn you, you know, that'll wake you up pretty quick. Um, oh, yeah. You know, you know, so uh, I, th I think part of uh, um, and I parted way with with two bands. But uh, in retrospect, I look back at that. And one of the factors, I think there's an aspect of eventually you get it's called paternalism. They get to a point where it's like I'm in control and I don't need, need to hear dad anymore. Right, <laughs> right. And and it's a thankless job, isn't it? You know, it's uh, I, I've managed a couple of groups as well. I managed one little Mormon band out of uh, I did it as a favor to the record company. He asked me to do it. And then once I was in it, I was like, you son of a bitch. Now I get it, you know, because I was like, hey, we got some shows with the used up in Utah. And they're like, oh, no. And then they started quoting the Bible like, well, the ox and the mire and we can't work on Sunday. I'm like, look, even Christian artists work on Sunday. In fact, it's their best day of the week. Like, get your fucking guitars on and get on stage and play. You know what I mean? So you start getting oh, that, that kind of backlash. That, that, that ain't going to fly with a Mormon band. No, <laughs> no, it didn't. And it didn't fly with me as a manager. That was over quick. And, um, and, and you're right. I mean, again, we've all kind of gone through it, especially it's interesting when you manage someone from an artist's point of view, because I have zero talents. I'm like, look, I'm 56 years old. I've had certainly my successes, and as we all know, all successes are born of probably 10 times as many failures. And it's like, look, if I'm still willing to get in the trenches and get in a van or get in a car and go drive around and play, I certainly expect you to, you know? So I, I kind of figure in my companies, that's the benchmark, you know? If, if the boss is still willing to do it, then I expect everyone else to do it too, you know? And uh, I had a manager years ago, I remember when I did artist relations for Peavy, he told me, he said, he goes, he goes, I'm not going to work any harder than my band is. And he said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to beg you to come to your, to the table of your success. You know, if I got to keep begging you to do this, then you're, then you're not cut out to do it. So, uh, and I got that, you know, I, I wake up today as excited about rock and roll as I did when I was 10, 11 years old, getting my bass and learning my first song. So well, for, for me, I had a slightly different perspective as well in that, uh, for me, it was not a job. It was a way of life. Yeah. And then it was a way of life. It was 24-7, 365. Yeah. And when you find yourself naked in your kitchen at 4 o'clock in the morning, 
trying to get the accountant out of bed so as he can get some cash out of his safe so as that you can get Axel sprung out of the sheriff's office before <laughs> they send him down to county. <laughs> you know what I mean about 24-7. Exactly. <laughs> I do know. In fact, I just accepted some interviews I'm going to do on Thanksgiving. Tell my wife. It's for <laughs> we'll eat dinner later after we do that. But, hey, they're in Germany. I got to do interviews. You know, you got to do interviews. So, yeah. yeah, it's like, to me, it's like, oh, that's right. It's a holiday. That comes like second, you know, and it's uh, I'd, sometimes I got to sometimes reframe that a little bit because I'm just I just go, go, go. But but uh, well, hey, look, and Alan, for you, it's probably one of the reasons that you can that you're able to retire with a with a with a conscience, you know, is that you did your part, you know, like, like you said, you know, you 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 ran it as far as it could go, and when people didn't want to listen or take direction, it's like, well, my job is done, and off to Prescott. You have a well, bar, yeah, right? And uh, thank you for saying it, but it, yeah. it's also the realization that uh, this does not define my life. You know, that moment yeah. when you get a record, you get a Grammy or something, you yeah. get a record that goes to number one, you sit there and go, I don't feel any different. Hasn't changed any of my problems. Yeah, you know, and you, and you you wake up one day and go, uh, what else is this all about? This is all too consuming. Well, the truth of it is, as soon as you get the gold record or the platinum record, there's just that tomorrow the phone rings for just more of the continuation. You know what I mean? It, it, it yeah. and it, and it can be a bit like a drug. It's sort of like it's. Uh, you know, it's uh, I remember talking to my dad about that because he was, you know, the Ellison men have always been businessmen, never music businessmen. But I was talking to my dad about that. He said, you know, it, it costs a million bucks to sell a million records. And if you can sell another seven or eight on the backs of that first million, that's where the money's at. You know, the pl a platinum record doesn't necessarily mean you made any money. Um, right. It's like, if you know what I mean? By the time you've toured and you've well, tour support. You do, how much did you spend ma making a Megadeth record? What, what was your average budget? You know, those early budgets. I mean, I, I remember the you know, first record was eight grand. I think when we the second record, combat records allowed us twenty five thousand dollars. And then fortunately, capital came in and picked it up. So off $25,000, we sold a half a million records. So, you know, but again, there's videos and tour support and all yeah. the rest of that stuff. So a half a million bucks, we didn't really make any money, um, you know, and then, you know, then, you know, they were, you know, 100-ish, 150-ish, you know, so they were, um, you know, they, they were, they were an, enough, but, but, you know, again, when you start getting into big studios and you're locking out studios at $1,200, $1,500 a day for three to four weeks to, you know, to do, to do, usually we'd cut drums and bass in the bigger rooms and then we'd go to the smaller studios, but then by the time you mix and everything else, so, you know. 80, 75, 80, 100 grand goes pretty quick, you know, and um, and then by the time you turn it in and you get you make a video or two and, you know, videos back in those days were anything from 80 to 100 grand, 150 grand, you know, 50 percent recoupable from the band. Yeah. So, you know, and then you go to Europe and you're going to lose money and go to Japan, make some money, go to Australia, spend it all. And, uh, you know, but the good news is doing all that, you know, now, you know, again, I can sit back and have some mailbox money because we did all that work back then, you know, and that that that's kind of the long range vision we always had to have was, hey, listen, guys, you're going to go over, you know, you're going to, you know, hey, many, many tours for many years. My guitar tech made a lot more money than me. <laughs> you know, me and Dave, we, you know, we, we're, you know, you know, the owners of the business get paid last. You know, so you've got to pay for your walkie-talkie company and the lighting and the buses and the crew and everything else and your payroll taxes and, you know, finally, you know, that's why one hit record can turn the corner, but 
then you got to still keep the still keep the machine going, you know. What exactly yeah. the machine? I mean, one of the things that uh, you become aware of fairly quickly is if you're developing some momentum, you tend to develop a whole bunch of people that you're responsible to. Yeah. Keep them paid and happy. Their mortgages paid and yeah. The old machine starts rolling. I mean, you know, that's basically what killed Jerry Garcia was trying to keep that machine rolling all the time. Yeah. And that's why when rehab comes in, it just stops the machine and it stops the momentum. You know what I mean? So, and look, yeah. rehab is part of rock and roll. I mean, it just is. I mean, there's things that, you know, right. I always said nothing feeds momentum like momentum, you know, when the juggernaut's rolling, man, and you can just keep that thing oh, going. I I, th mm -hmm. I think we generated a T-shirt back in the day, a tour T-shirt, uh. with all the list of the, the rehabs, Hazelden, <laughs> Sierra Tucson, you know. You're not really a real rock and roll band unless you've been to, I always said, you know, Guns, Motley, and Megadeth, the three different sort of genres of rock and roll, yep. but pretty much the same band, you know, kind of the same <laughs> right to the edge lifestyle. So, uh, hey, that's what makes great rock. You know, Sex Pistols, I mean, these guys, they were our heroes, you know, and we didn't necessarily try to recreate their path, but they sort of made it allowable, I guess, at a certain day. And that's why by like the late 80s, I remember by 1988, when Doc McGee started to manage us, you know, that now, now rock stars are going to rehab and movie stars and stuff were coming out. And it was like, you know, it was no longer, hey, do you want to go to a bar? It was like, hey, do you want to go to a meeting? You know, and I was like, man, these guys are raining on my punk rock parade or what the hell is this shit? Sobriety? What? You know, and um, but, you know, by 1990, I got clean and I've stayed clean ever since. And it's been great. But that that those 88, 88 to 90, those 18 months, that was rough, man. That was a hard turn. And I'm, I'm lucky I made the turn because a lot of our friends didn't, you know. True. I hope you're making notes here because in one of the future books, you're going to have to have uh, a section in the book where your uh, your main character has to go off to rehab. And some, Absolutely. And some really malevolent but gorgeous female tries to kill him there. I I, we, we, I think that's amazing. Yep, yeah, I think Dave's writing it down right now. We might have to call you in for a for a quick consulting on that book. There. Absolutely, <laughs> that's a great idea. Yeah. That's I think perfect. we should do that. Um, I think we should do that. I'm, I'm going to ask you just to, just two real quick questions. In that time of 88, 89, 90, did it ever get to the point where you were like one drink or one thing too far from, 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 from death? From like, did you almost get to that, you know, I'm not coming back? I mean, so I was 23 when I first went to rehab, right after Donington, uh, Castle Donington in August 88. Um, and I'm lucky and I was strung out. I mean, in fact, you're, you know, guns played right before us. Um, I remember a couple of fans died that day were killed. I mean, there was like 107,000 people and no barricades like we know it today. I mean, it was just, it was a free for all. It was like Woodstock of heavy metal, you know, it was just full on. And, um, it was, it was heavy. And I mean, I was really strung out. It was, it was bad. I was detoxing, of course. And I went right home from that, went right into rehab and Van Nuys. And, you know, I, I say it, you know, my soul died before my body died, meaning I, I hit a bottom that my, I just couldn't take sort of emotionally and personally. Um, and, um, you know, other people look, went straight to the bottom and, one shot was too much and their body, their heart stopped and that was it. And they were done, you know, and, and we buried those people, of course. So I'm, I'm lucky that, you know, and I, you know, I've, I've heard it said, you know, hitting bottom can be described as the next thing you're about to lose is more important than the dope and the booze, 
you know? So for me, you know, I saw my career, Megadeth, everything that we were working for going away. You know, I had no girlfriend. I had no money. We couldn't get to rehearsal to write a song. I mean, we were stopped dead in our tracks and we had everything. We had a record deal, Capitol Records. We had it all. You know, John Jackson was our booking agent. I mean, Andy Summers. I mean, we had everything in line. We just couldn't get out of our own way, you know, or get or get out of get out of bed after, you know, being strung out just to freaking get into, you know, get to, to get just to write a song, you know, and that, and that was the point where it was where it was just stopped, you know, so. Um, yeah, Alan, you're lucky you didn't come in. I mean, you'd already been in those trenches with other folks, you know, so you're lucky you didn't come into our world at that point. And that, you know, it's funny how manage, I was talking to a friend of mine at lunch today, how management can be this great sort of Al-Anon codependence thing. If you sort of allow that or what, you know, sort of, and, and, and some people of course come in, fortunately in our case, Ron Lafitte came in and scraped us up off the bottom and. And set us straight. But I remember there was a day I came home from the dealer's house. I was totally strung out. And I mean, I just broke down. And, and Ron looked me straight in the eye, you know, and he just said, he goes, listen, man, if, if you want help, I will stop and drop everything to get you the help. But you have to want it. And that was a defining day. It was in this apartment that Dave and I lived at over at Studio Colony in, Van I- in uh, Studio City. And I just said, you know what? I do. I want help. And that that it's funny when you say I want help, when you sort of verbalize it, you sort of put it out to the universe it sets it in motion, you know, because that was the beginning of the end for me. And that was that was really it. And it, it took a few months after that to finally get one day clean. But, um, you know, and ironically, Alan, we were in I was only about three weeks sober. We were in with Mike Klink out at Rumbo uh, cutting uh, the Rust in Peace record um, wow. about three weeks sober. Yeah. Yeah. And Dave had. One more. He talks about this in his book. He had one more trip back into rehab, <laughs> and for him, while we were making the beginning, while we were cutting the tracks on that record, um, and um, but yeah, that was it. And and Mike, of course, being a wonderful soul, and that's where you guys cut Appetite for Destruction, and so we were kind of on a similar path, you know, with uh, a wonderfully patient soul. Yeah, isn't he? Mike yeah, is a really wonderful patient. guy. I mean that. That that's why we selected him. I mean, you knew the characters I was dealing with. Oh and, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. You know yeah. the idea of putting a Roy Thomas Baker with Guns and Roses. Yes, that's going to work. No, that's <laughs> never going to work. Not going to work. We, I, I need yeah. to find the most infinitely patient person I could, yeah. who was good with guitars and had worked with Michael Schenker. Because if you can work with Michael Schenker. You can work with anybody. You know, it's funny you said that because me and Marty Friedman would sit here and that it's funny. We were obviously impressed with the Appetite for Destruction, but the album, of course, they really, you know, we were fans of from Mike was when he mixed uh, UFO Strangers in the Night under Ron Nevison. And so we kept yeah. asking, come on, tell us some Schenker stories. You know, we wanted to hear UFO <laughs> stories, probably the same way your band did, probably the same way I'm sure Slash and the Guns guys were probably wanting to hear some UFO stories and you know, and it's funny because Slash and I were hanging out quite a bit in late 88 and early 89. Uh, um, and he wrote the foreword to the Rust in Peace Megadeth book that just came out. So he talks about that. And, you know, we became we became good friends and did a lot of guitar playing. And, you know, our lifestyles were very similar in that in that moment. And um, uh, in fact, there was a moment we, we kind of tethered it out to Slash. Like, well, what would it be like if you played in Megadeth? You know, and they had, you guys, he had just come off of Appetite, of course, and the floodgates of money, I'm sure, were about ready to just open, pour open. And, you know, it had never been right for Slash to play in Megadeth. But he was a good friend, you know, to, to me and to me and Dave. And obviously, it, I got to know him as a guitar player and a musician. And, 
you know, we once I got sober and got clean, we we kind of went our kind of went our separate ways for you know for a few years just on and of course the, i think the next time i saw uh guns and roses when we played at rock and reel in uh, 1991 and it was amazing to see the last time i'd seen guns and roses play but the first time i saw them was opening for the cult i think at long beach arena and they still look kind of like a club band and then they played before us uh at donnington in august 88 and they'd been on tour with aerosmith and it was like wow these guys are freaking kicking ass like this this is this band it stepped it up. And then two years later, three years later, in uh, two and a half years later, I guess, at Rock and Rio, and suddenly they were the Rolling Stones. You're like, holy hell, like what happened? You know? And um, I mean, so that, those steps of that band was. Alan so Niven great to happened. See. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was impressive because, again, you had a lot of personalities. You had a lot, you were working around, you know? And, um, but it's, it's been great. Slash and I have remained, you know, good friends. In fact, he just took me and Frank Bello from Anthrax. We have our little side band, Altitudes and Attitude. He took us out on tour last year over in Europe. And, Slash doesn't need a support. He sells these places out on his own. You know what I mean? So that just shows the show. Just He's a good he's, soul. He's a bro, man. He's a good friend. He's a, he's a good soul. He is. He's really good. As big of a rock star as he is. I mean, he is just he's just a down-home guy, man. So I can't say enough great about how cool he is. Yeah. Um, so I'll ask you two, uh, two other things, and then I'll let Alan uh, wrap this up. Uh, you, you and Drew have a band starting, or you're, you're going to do some music together, from what I understand? We have this group that we call, we decided to call it Lucid. Um, and it's just a red, now it's a record, um, you know, and uh, Lucid kind of describes the sound of it. And it, it is, it's just a record. I don't know when it's going to come out. We're finishing mixing it right now. I think Vinny's got all the vocals done on it. And it's just something we did this summer. Um, it went for, again, one of these, hey, dude, you want to play on a track to, hey, well, now we got 12. In fact, I think I went to LA, did I play, I played like, like 10 songs in two days. I was yeah. exhausted. Yeah, you were a trooper, man. You were a trooper. But I was in it. I just cut the Megadeth record. I just cut the Ellison No Cover record. Went straight to LA, cut 10 tracks with Drew and Mike and Vinny. And, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's a cool sound. I I mean, I'd say it probably has kind of an STP kind of Stone Temple Pilot ish kind of vibe. Meet Sponge, of course, you know, Vinny Vinny's a very defined uh, sound to his vocals. So, we're gonna, you know, send that around and see see what, uh, you know, what comes of that as far as getting that released. And and of course, you know, next year there'll be a Megadeth record. I think Sponge is a record coming out, so there's, you know, gonna start to be some some traffic now opening up. So we gotta a lot of traffic find- and. And we'll yeah. we'll bring it home to the uh, Canadian traffic. Of course, you've got Sword. They just put out In Command, the single. Yeah. Uh, I've had a chance to hear some of the songs. It's a great sounding record. You're yeah. of course the label. What do you think of what you heard? Is it is it good to go? Or are are you happy? Or are you the sword yeah. record? Yeah, I, from what I've heard of it, I think it's amazing. In fact, I got to still hear the final um, mix version of what they have right now. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, Rick came through town last year, and that's when I heard the first bits of it. And and you know, Rick is one of the you know you sit in a room with guys, and they're and they they you kind of almost can't tell if it's great or not because they sell you on it because they're so passionate about, Oh my God, check this part right out. Sing this chorus right here. You know? And you're just like, yeah, this is great. You know, he's just totally pumped you into the moment. And, um, but it was great. It sounded great. And, and it, and it, it had that sword sound and it was heavy and it was modern and it was thick and, you know, they've never been so much of a, full-blown i mean they're a metal band but but they've got a very clean melodic sound to them you know which um 
you know, which is, which is, I've always loved about them. And Rick is again, a great soul. They're a good band. They're good dudes. Um, you know, they've done a lot. That's, that's, that's a band that's been around and definitely has made its mark. Oh yeah. And I mean, they've, they've opened for everybody. They've opened for Metallica. Yeah. They've opened for Frank Marino. They, 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 yeah. they, they work hard. You know, Rick, Rick Hughes, who's the singer of, of sort knows mm. hard work. I mean, yeah. he, he, you know, he's he does. Uh, but on that, Alan, I will let you take it, take us home. I will say for my part, uh, merci, Drew. Merci, uh, Dave. And Alan, uh, the, the floor is yours. Well, obviously and first, it's really cool to see you again, Dave. Um, I of think course. the cab is turning up and we've got to go and jump in it. <laughs> hey, you, 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 you own a bar, right? Don't you own a bar up in Prescott? I made that mistake. I mean, <laughs> when I first came out here, it was to get away from anything and everything L.A. Yeah. and to get away from people and to get away from politics and betrayals and bullshit and all that yeah. crap. Um, you know, some there's an old saying that seekers find what they need to find in the desert. And some it takes 40 days and 40 nights. And me mm-hmm. being slow, dumb and stupid, it's taken a lot longer. Um, but there, there came a point where I'd been out here for a while and I was starting get a little antsy and itchy for human energy around me again yeah. and of course i thought like a dumb rock and roller and i thought well what do you do after the gig oh well you go and have a drink well let's open a bar probably the dumbest thing i ever did in my life and i, yeah. I ran it for three and a half years mm-hmm. it was a nightmare i ended up firing every manager i tried to put in there mm-hmm. and ended up doing 70 80 hours of work a week starting every morning with cleaning toilets because only yeah. the owner will clean a bathroom properly. Um, <laughs> and it was just a hell. Yeah. Um, two good things came out of it. I had a lot of college kids who would work for me. And after we closed, we'd sit there until the early hours of the morning. And, and having young brains and young conversation around me was what I needed at the time. And I met my second wife there. Nice. She used to come in and to piss me off, she'd try and dance on my pool tables. And that was, we had discussions about that. <laughs> oh, that's, wow, great. That's, that's great. That's great. That is cool. It's, it's, uh, it's, man, it's great to see you again. I, I hear never, your name. Ever, I hear Dave. You. Dave, yeah. never, ever open a bar. I won't. I will. And being a sober guy, there's no need to. I tell you what, I did have a coffee store um back in my little hometown in jackson minnesota and and i sort of infused some cash and helped kind of bail a a store out and put my name over it so i did have a little experience with it and i can see very quickly because people started coming to us about how do we franchise this and do this and i'm just like good lord Mm -hmm. you know it's like i still my passion is to be a you know a musician and a rock and roll bass player and on tour and stuff like that yeah exactly i was like man one of one of the one of the few interesting things that Picasso said was that we all have the right to choose the age at which we live. And he chose 25. And I thought, well, he's a little bit of a, he's, he's an immature character. So I'm yeah. going to take 27. So <laughs> for a long time, I've been 27. I'm beginning to feel I've got to go to 28 now. But Nice. Well, I'm, I'm holding on to 29 as long as I can, right? That's it. <laughs> yeah, you gotta hold on to eighteen. That's the song. That's the song. Yeah. Right? 
suit looking as young and handsome as he does, he doesn't have to hold on to anything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Drew, Drew, thank you for setting this up. Alan, thank no, you yeah. as always for joining for joining me. And yeah. uh, Dave, always always a pleasure. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about you today because I've been chatting with Tal Bachman on email. You know, on the Allison No Cover record, we did a cover of No Fra- Not Fragile, and I wanted to get it over to Randy and uh, to Tal, and, and I guess Fred has heard it now, and so I'd sent it over to Robin Bachman as well. You know, when I first moved here uh, down in Chandler, Arizona, they had the Ostrich Fest, and BTL was playing there, and it was the three guys without Randy Bachman. It was actually another guy named Randy, ironically, and um, and Marty Friedman and I went and uh, kind of fanboyed out on him and robin became a good friend and remember he came to see us on the euthanasia tour uh, a year or so late a couple years later when we came up through probably abbotsford or vancouver or something you know yep, so west yeah um yeah and i got to play with randy bachman uh when i when i was doing artist relations he was he came into pv for a short bit and i, I jammed uh, a couple tunes with him at a pv uh, party at the at the hilton uh, there at, at, in anaheim so yeah it's nice it's just it's kind of a nice revisit back to the uh, the Bachman family and BTO and of course the band that got me into this whole thing at age ten when the Not Fragile record came out you know so it was fun to uh-huh. fun to cover their song and do an honorarium back to them so it's ironic that speaking to another Canadian today so yeah yes <laughs> since you're since you're basically our our, our Canadian A and R arm I'm the, the I'm uh, the token Canadian <laughs> yeah right I'm the token Canadian so. <laughs> and and Alan Alan's a token Canadian too he's he's uh, hung out with me long enough that it, he's 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 got my Canadian sensibilities nice. Nespa, and, and, and all and all Canadian snowbird in Arizona so there's the circle right there you know? they, yeah there they do and uh, Alan the next time the uh, Minnesota uh, wild show up for the uh, Glendale or for the Arizona things you and Dave must go together that sounds like a good idea <laughs> you're a hockey fan I, I am. I am. My son's a big hockey fan. I'm. I'm a you know marginal fan. I'd definitely go to a game with you though. If you want to hit a game, let's do it. You're on. I let's love do it. it. Love it. Great. Thank you, boys. Bye. Thank you, gentlemen. Right. À la Thank prochaine. You so much. It's been an honor. Thank you. Absolutely. Bye. Thank you, Drew. Bye. All right. Let me turn.